Hi, everyone. Can everyone hear me? I can hear you. Oh, okay. Hi, Atma. All right, so just Hello. give this one minute and then we'll start. Thanks for the feedback, everyone. Okay, perfect. So I think uh, we can start. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us today. Um, so today we're going to be talking um, about how sine waves have helped um, Cloudflare optimize reboots. This is mostly based on an article that um, our speaker today wrote. So um, conversations will kind of be focused around that. Um, I hope people have read the article and have come with questions. The way this would go is um, we would just talk a bit about the article, some questions I have, and after some time, we would open up the floor for people to ask their own questions. Um, so the person we have here today is Otbeer, <laughs> who is my friend. So Otbeer is an SRE at Cloudflare. And um, he's very passionate about reliability performance. He also has like a, had an article on um, performance for like Node applications some weeks ago. Um, so yeah. So Otbe, hi. Hello. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I've read your article. Like you can just like start right away. I've read your article um, about the issue that Cloudflare was facing. But could you like paint a like a more vivid picture, like what was the what was the issue, and what what did you need to solve essentially? Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, beginning. <laughs> so I think yeah, I think I'll start from the beginning. So I'll first look at what Cloudflare does. Uh, what Cloudflare is. So Cloudflare is um, an infrastructure like services company. Yeah, um, we provide like cloud services for various companies. Um, we're most popular for our DDoS mitigation services and then CDN, content delivery, and I think workers as well. Um, but yeah, pretty much what we do is we sit in front of people's websites and block bad guys away. That's the very basic explanation of what we do. Um, and then how we how SREs fit into this. Um, so I'd like to joke about being an SRE is like very similar to being a houseboy. Um or a butler, but in the real sense, what we do is it's a combination of fixing things that are broken and writing systems to make sure that things aren't broken. All right, because most people just ask, most people actually search SRE with or reliability, you're just always like solving it. Yeah, um, so the way Cloudflare is structured is that we have various data centers across the world, um, I think around. 300 different data centers. And as a result of this, we have, I was about to say, sorry, we have a ton of servers um, in the, we have a ton of servers, let's say more than 20,000, right? Um, and we need we need to reboot those servers regularly because when you are the bleeding edge of technology, you need to make sure that you are up to date with like kernel patches, right? Yeah. So the main reason you need to reboot a Linux machine is to make sure that you get the kernel patches when they come mm -hmm. out. Um, if not, you just fall behind and you're vulnerable to attacks, which is, which would be ironic <laughs> if, you are a yeah. if you're a company that provides cybersecurity services and then you are getting um, attacks. Um, so yeah, that's why we need to, we need to reboot regularly. Um, but because of the scale that this that the reboots are, you can't possibly do it manually, right? So you need to build a system to pretty much reboot. This, the um, we call them metals, but let us call them servers here um, to put the servers um, in a regular cycle. Um, so yeah, that's how the reboot orchestrator. Um, it has an internal name, but I, I don't like the. <laughs> um, 
So we have an, a reboot orchestrator that pretty much handles that. Yeah. Um, so we reboot in cycles. Um, I think we mentioned in the article that some test colors reboot faster than production colors, be- production data centers, because um, if there's an issue, we want to be able to catch that very quickly. Um, so yeah, that's what the reboot orchestrator does. So now to the main problem. Um, the issue we had was that, yes, we have various um, technical services that make sure that even if even when we're doing maintenance, maintenance is on um, data centers, we don't affect customer traffic. So like we've written about Unimog is like a layer three or four load balancer that makes sure that if a metal or if a server is um, in maintenance, it doesn't get traffic, right? But we still wanted to optimize the reboots in the sense that we don't want to affect customer traffic in any way, just in case anything ever goes wrong. Um, so the idea was to find the ideal time to reboot. Um, this is a common like maintenance problem. You you want to run maintenances when your customer traffic is at the, is at the lowest, right? So what we had was um, a manual-ish um, process where someone just looked at the pattern of CPU traffic. Oh, so, so, sorry. Um, so there is a correlation between, um, I don't want to assume that everyone knows, there's a correlation between the amount of CPU in any piece of infrastructure you are using and um, the amount of traffic it's getting. Um, this is not the case in every um, type of infrastructure, obviously, because it can vary, like you can have a piece of infrastructure that does most of the, its work in the background. But if it is something that um, mostly does work through customer requests, then obviously you can correlate your customer traffic with the amount of CPU used. So that's why the CPU was the um, metric we used. Um, so someone will just pretty much look, will just pretty much look at the trend of CPU data and say, oh yeah, at this time, almost every day it drops. And then we just had a manual list that would just go and update. And then this list was fed into the orchestrator. Um, so the problem is that if you ask any SRE, toil is um, our worst enemy. So toil is any process that is repetitive and can pretty much be automated. It's just like a pain to do. Um, so it's something that you know, yes, this thing should be automated, but you just keep doing it because you're lazy. Um, so it became a, obviously, um, it became a toilsome process to keep that list up to date. And CloudFair moves really fast. So we're always adding new data centers every so often. And the n- number of servers are always increasing. So um, it just became very difficult to maintain that regularly and um, keep up to date. So we needed a way to pretty much automate that away and make the process more flexible. Um, Okay, yes, that's the summary. So I want to like understand this, right? So there's a list of, um, there's a list that someone went to manually updates and this list was for the 300 data centers. <laughs> so, okay, so someone will look at the, like dashboards or, some, or metrics for like 300 data centers and updates the, the, the list, okay. Well, so the thing is, you don't, we didn't really need to update the data, the metric, the, window for the 300 data centers at once that would be hard. <laughs> okay yeah um so because um our data centers are region based right okay so because of the cdn capabilities that cloud so yes aggregates the magic yeah exactly so the magic in that is um we have data centers spread up spread across the across the world mm. so it's very unlikely that a data center's traffic pattern changes mm-hmm. often right which is why it was mostly only when a new data center was spun up that we needed to like look through and oh, was the pattern after maybe like three weeks of it. Right. right. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, ju- just like a, a sec- small segue, like um, this just, I was doing like a ritual on like a product I worked on recently where um, before some automation, <laughs> every time we added like this new, let's call it like a new thing because um, I can't get into the details. I needed to add two extra lines yeah. to like a code base. So it got to a point where like the number of lines I needed to add were like 900 or something. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there's no way I'm doing this. So 
Um, yeah. Anyway, so preaching the gospel of SR is it's not just about fixing, but you build systems as well. Yeah. So um, thank you. So like, I want to like before we talk about the solution, I may be interested in how um, like reboots are reversed, right? Like, so let's say um, there is a reboot. Maybe there's a patch, right, um, to the kernel. And this patch has introduced maybe like a faulty change to like the file system or something. And um, yeah. things are breaking. How is this reversed? Um, and like, do you follow the same, you need to look for a window or does it like just get rebooted to the previous version as quickly as possible? Like what's the process there? All right, cool. Um, so, oh, where does that from? So yeah, so the first thing is that the orchestrator does not reboot the entire data center at once. Right. Um, it acts like it only permits a certain number of reboots per day. Um, so the first thing is, if there's any issue, we know that it's not going to affect the entire data center at once. It's going to affect only a certain number. Um, and then the main thing is when this happens, obviously we get alerts. And then the main, the what was done is we obviously disable the the servers and sometimes we get disabled automatically but make sure that the servers are disabled and then just stop reboots in that data center um it's the the reason that this doesn't happen often is that we reboot our test colors much quicker so if there's anything wrong in a kernel update it's very likely going to come up in a test color in a test data center sorry internal link <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> so if i say colo just know i mean data centers yeah um so if any issue comes up right we make sure that yeah the the reboots are just stopped and the issue is fixed and then other servers can be rebooted there isn't much nuance in um solving those because um it only would affect maybe one or two servers as well before we notice and still dress up and yeah and fix whatever the issue is yeah okay that's fine and like before the um like sine wave fix was there like anything cloudflare tried in the past to solve this problem or no um i don't think so to be honest um this problem predated me so i don't think i have that information whether like other things were tried right um yeah. Okay, so how did the sine wave like path come up? Like was was this in a conversation? Did you have to do research? Like what was the path to that? To be honest, to be honest, I would like to be able to say that <laughs> I'm a genius and I <laughs> I had I came up with mm -hmm. it. But um Nick Rhodes, he's one of my teammates. Um he had the idea for sign fitting. Um he looked into it he looked into it a bit and he was pretty impressed with the results he saw. So he shared with the team, and that's how the idea came. Okay. Um, it was very straightforward. Okay, that's nice. So um, can you talk a bit like about the process? So this idea came to the team. It, like Your teammate had tested it um, on some, I guess, a smaller system. So how, how, was, how did the team validate it? Um, what was the process there? Um, yeah. Well, um, so after he shared the the results of the tests um the main thing was just to we knew that it was something we wanted right so the next thing is yeah we're going to do a project on this um and then it was pretty much a standard um project management flow where like you start a project you create tickets and all that um you decide what what the end goals you want are from the project so our end goals are pretty much to make sure that first of all we don't want any manual process anymore um, and to build something that was flexible, something that was reusable, and something that could be exposed to be consumed by other teams. Um, because the issue of having a maintenance window is not only affected by, is not only needed by reboots, right? It's a common um, problem that many, many other teams have um, where they want to do things um, maintenance type things and they want to do it at those low traffic windows. So one of the goals was also to um, expose it in various ways, but we eventually settled on a Prometheus metric because a metric is easily consumed by like teams in the entire company. Um, 
But yeah, that was that was it. So we just spun up a project and worked. I have a question though. Like, what if like multiple, t- t- like if you expose this um, capability to multiple teams and they all want to do something during the maintenance window, like how does that all get synced, right? So if like uh, server is being rebooted in its maintenance window, yeah. then and another team wants to, I don't know, run a background job or something. Like how how does that work? Yeah. Um, so we have um, an internal process, an automated internal process for experiments. Um, so it's very likely that the team would create an experiment, and that is one of the um, one of the things we check before make, before boosting a server. So if a server is running an active experiment, so I don't to Oh, okay. Um, so it's very likely that it does the process that we use. Okay, that's cool. Okay, so yeah, let's go to the. Um to the sin- sinusoidal wave theory. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> can can you like, like sine wave? Sine wave theory is, is simpler. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you like explain what it is and explain um, like how the team applied it? So I've read the article. I see, so there are like, like a few steps here, right? So um, yeah. I read the article. I see that there were, there's like a standard formula there were some assumptions made for some values. Um, like, I want to understand more about those values. Like, where where did the assumptions come from in terms of, like, you approximated, for example, um, the amplitude. You um, gave, like, an initial guess for, I forget what it was, P0 in, like, CurveFit. Um, and, yeah. like, I've used CurveFit recently because I'm taking a statistics course for unrelated reasons. Um, and I didn't have to use the initial guess, but it wasn't also like sine wave. I was, I wasn't doing like a sine wave fitting. It was just like, uh, another type. So I don't know if this is like something yeah. peculiar to sine wave. So that would be something I would like you to touch on. So this is a lot of things I've said, so I can take it in steps, but, um, <laughs> yeah, like let's, let's just see. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, we can talk about why you want to use a sine wave in the first place. Um, so when we, um, or when Nick, because I like to give him credit for the idea, when Nick um, was in the initial um, investigation, right, um, you kind of want to have, um, for me, I think the best solutions are the ones that are first are the most are simple and the ones that are theoretical because math doesn't lie, in my opinion. Um so when you look at a sine wave and you look at a CPU graph that has um, a cyclic property, right? Like that goes up and goes down, right? Just visualizing it, you can see that, yeah, this a sine wave would be the best way to represent this theoretically, right? Because it has like very similar properties. Like it has a peak, like it has, it reaches 80% max and goes down to 20% at like the trough yeah. and stuff. It also has a period. So like the period is the amount of time it takes for the wave to complete, mm-hmm. right? And then because this is a 24-hour cycle, if you look at the the traffic trend, you'll see that, yes, that actually happens in a 24-hour cycle, right? So we have our period is 24 hours. Yeah. And then it's also it also repeats, like, um, some um, data centers get less traffic on the weekends, which is understandable, and then some still have that same pattern on the weekends. Um, so in terms of choosing what kind of wave represents like the traffic pattern it was very easy to to, to settle on a sine wave All right um and then luckily for us um python which is what we used which is what the um, orchestra is written in um has a bunch of call fits um formulas in scipy so it wasn't like we were going to implement the call fit algorithm by ourselves right. it was just we just needed to make like initial guesses mm-hmm. Now bringing us to the initial guesses. Um, the main reason we need we needed the initial guesses was to make the fit more accurate, right? Because in core fit, if you do not add initial guesses in your formula, the defaults will just be one, right? And um, when you test that and you see that it just <laughs> just doesn't work. So an example is the offsets, which um, is used to shift the curve, is used to shift the sine wave up. So the reason that that is needed is a regular sine wave is going to start at zero, like the base is going to be zero, right? Um, on the y-axis and on the x-axis. Um, but your CPU graph is going to 
not start from zero because it's going to let's say go from 80 percent to 20 percent. that's my favorite example mm-hmm. it's going to go from 80 percent to 20 percent right at the troughs so to make the visualization better like you can in theory you can leave it that way. yeah but to make the visualization better because we're plotting the graphs obviously to see how well they fit um we needed to shift the the um, sine wave up by the base not like just shift up by like the top and bottom mm-hmm. you have to shift it up by an offset right and this um offset turned out to be to be the mean of the cpu values so the mean is just like the average of the cpu values um so when you shift up by an offset um by the mean right the curve kind of starts at the base of the cpu so like how, sorry how, how did you get to like mean of cpu values like so if you're trying different values for offsets like did you just yeah. like do a try and error okay we'll just try we'll just try no. mean <laughs> so how how did you decide to use the mean is this something that's standard is this something that um like yeah how, how do you decide on yeah well the one of the best things that happened to us was that this is a i wouldn't call it a common problem but it's something that has been solved regularly in academia yeah right so if you do like a ton of research, you would see um, examples of um, curve fitting with sine waves. Um, so definitely, we didn't come up with using the mean. We didn't do trial and error. Like to be fair, this part, like the approximation part, was um, pretty easy to get because we had like research papers and YouTube videos to watch. Yeah. To get like the approximations right. Um, what we just needed to do was to make sure that they made sense and then they worked for us. Um, Luckily, the values that we needed were already there. So if you're getting... The only thing you need in the real sense is the CPU. Um, and then most of it is just approximations of the CPU in different forms. So like you're yeah, getting the standard deviation, the mean, and, and all that. I guess the main thing that was really difficult to figure out was the chi-squared value, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Um, but yeah, or we can, we can talk about yeah, it we, we, no, <laughs> no, we can actually. So... Um, Chi-square, by the way, just for the audience, is how um, in the article Cloudflare measured the accuracy of the um, of the sine wave on the given CPU trend. So, why Chi-square? I guess, like first, qu- I mean, Chi-square is like a standard way to do this measurement. Yeah. But one question I have is. Are there any other ways? I mean, if you don't know, that's that's also fine. But are there any other ways to do this, like um, to get like the accuracy? If yes, why was chi square the choice? If the answer is also standard, that's fine. But um, yeah, let's talk about how accuracy was measured and what were the tweaks um, that were involved in that. All right, cool. Um, I'll first go on. <laughs> okay. So the the why this was the most difficult part was the determining the accuracy of fits for sine waves on in core fitting is not something that has been documented properly in my opinion um that was one of the reasons i decided to write the article because i wanted this information out there just for anyone that needed it um but yeah so it kind of took a longer time than it should have to determine like what the chi squared would be and stuff like that the um youtube video that is, that is referenced i had to watch that entire, the, the video was one hour long <laughs> yeah and watch i watched it multiple times before i could get like understand what he was saying um so yeah the chi squared value is it helps you compare your observed versus your expected values mm-hmm. and see how close they are um based on how close they are you know how well your curve fits right um, so the observed value is the sine wave. No, the observed value is your CPU trend. Yeah. The expected the expected value is your sine wave. Um, and the closer they are, the 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 more accurate your fit is. So what we from the formula, I think formula. I don't want to say the formula. It has like a bunch of squares and standard deviation stuff. Um, but the formula pretty much gives you a simple value. Um. But what we observed was that the smaller the value, right, the better the fit was. Um, in this, this was one section where, like, I had to, we had to do a ton of like experimentation, yeah, because it wasn't like apparent from like there are different formulas for chi squared out there, um, but this one worked, right? 
So um, in terms of de- determining the accuracy of it, I personally thought this was important because um, if you deploy something like this, right, that is making such a critical decision, um, you want to be able to know if there are regressions. You want to be able to know um, what the worst data centers that have, what the, the data centers that have the worst fit, right? Um, based on this accuracy of fit, I think we have an SLA for what the fit should be before it's right. Printed, yeah. Right. Um, what's value? I can't remember the value. But um, yeah, so that kind of helps us to make decisions on um, whether we just revert to like to the fallback for now, um, because you would always get edge cases where a colo a data center does not have the um, does not fit the pattern, right? So, for instance, in most in al- almost all the test data centers, they don't have customer traffic, right? So they don't have any sinusoidal pattern. So all of them pretty much are using arbitrary value. Um, then, yeah, that, that's pretty much it in terms of the. Accuracy. So, is, is it possible, like, um, for there to be, uh, like a data center with traffic but not get a good enough fit? So, what happens in in that situation? Hundred um, percent. So, some data centers have just terrible, terrible fit. Some of them do not have a. A traffic pattern that is sinusoidal. Some of them just have constant um, CPU. That's by the way, segue. That is a sign that like the data center is not um utilized properly. Right. It's it's possible that like and that can be for like several mm-hmm. reasons. Um, maybe we just don't have a, like a strong enough customer base that use it in that location because remember that our data centers are region based. So we try to position our data centers as close to the customer as possible. Because if you are doing a CDN, if you are, if you have a CDN service, um, that's that's like the secret sauce for a CDN. Where, um, if a, if a website is oh, this is what I can say. <laughs> if a website, if I a website is using Cloudflare. Yeah. <laughs> website is using Cloudflare. The way we um serve your files or images or whatever, um, is by making sure that we're as close to your customers as possible. So, um, if we don't have a strong customer base or whatever in that region, um, then that, that data center is not going to have like a sinusoidal pattern. So in those cases, we just fall back, to be honest. Um, it can be for various reasons. Um, some reasons I, I cannot talk about because they go into too much, into too much detail about how we treat dormant and new data centers. But what I can say is um, we the main thing is falling back to the manual um, list. So if the data center has a um, an entry in the manual list from the past, then we can use that. But other than that, then this is beyond um, the scope of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, okay, thank you. Then um, in the article, you also like mentioned a few things around setting this like this up, right? So um, after yeah, um, you know you have after you read the. I guess the formula slash service slash tool to calculate this fit, then fitting into the system meant you needed to, like you need, the server needs to be able to tell what its maintenance window is so that it can either reject or accept a reboot request. So um, I have a, like, my question here is around like, what, is it like, is it computationally intensive to, um like get this value like calculate. yeah like calculate this value for the servers or it's like trivial it's it's pretty trivial so um we have a bunch of tests that benchmark this um it takes milliseconds to mm-hmm. be honest because um the source for the cpu traffic is the computation is done in the data center Right, so we have um, the reboot orchestrator is pretty much running on almost all the metals, most all the servers. So um, fetching data from Prometheus is trivial because it is within there's Prometheus running in data center, which we now federate to like yeah, beyond the scope. Um, <laughs> so that <laughs> that um, that fetching data from Prometheus is really fast, 
and then computing the um coffee is also really mm-hmm. fast. So it doesn't it's not a computationally intensive um, So like I ask because like in the in the article, right? You you mentioned if you there were a few things like around caching, around prefetching. So if this isn't computation yeah. intensive, then why were those like um I guess optimization is there? Like why was they need to cache? Why was they need to prefetch? Yeah, um well the first thing is um it might not be computationally intensive, but we also want to be like as safe as possible, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to um leave it open and then it now becomes computationally intensive and then you're scrambling to <laughs> make fixes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's the first thing, right? Also the um orchestrator just has a general pattern of making sure not to reach out to external um to reach out to infrastructure what do you call things like prometheus and Redis? agents um yes let, let's just agents okay <laughs> okay <laughs> so um the operator has a regular pattern where it tries not to reach out to those things as much as possible mm-hmm. right so that we don't overload it in any way yeah um so that's another reason um another reason well that's for the caching so the prefetch right so you think about the prefetch it wasn't about being computationally intensive it was about knowing when this computation was happening and controlling it as much as we could, right? Yeah. So there were several options here. The first thing that was implemented was whenever a reboot request comes, um, if the um, maintenance window had not been calculated, then we'll do it on the spot. The what, whoever is waiting will yeah. because it wasn't like a slow, mm-hmm. it wasn't a slow process, right? Um, but because we had metrics that dependent on that like dependent on this, we wanted to have like a way to know, okay, yes, this is when it's going to be calculated. And then obviously for troubleshooting purposes, if you are troubleshooting a new colo or a new data center, I'm gonna stop correcting myself. <laughs> if you're troubleshooting a new data center um that um has not calculated this yet. Oh, another reason, yes, a new data center might not get a reboot request for maybe based on the uptime SLA we have, mm-hmm. right? So for illustration purposes, maybe let's say our uptime SLA is 15 days. It's not going to get a reboot request in 15 yeah. days. Um, so we wanted to make sure that, yeah, that prefetch is happening um, and we know we can control when it's happening. Um, so that's why the prefetch was implemented. Okay. So what were the options? I think the options were, yes, leave the current, <laughs> leave the current way where like, oh, whenever the reboot request comes. But that means that you're going to have empty, empty metrics until that happens. Yeah. Um, or implement a separate process, like maybe a cron that makes a request to prefetch. We just felt like a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never really like went beyond just talking about yeah. it. And then doing a prefetch like when the, the server starts up. So yeah. Okay, um, that's cool. Thank you. Um, so I mean, at this point where we can like get questions from the audience, so please, if you want to ask any question, uh, feel free to... I forget what the lingo is, but raise your hand or request to speak. And yeah, we would we would accept in in the order. Um da, da, da. so just like pause. What do you what do you do when people when you're waiting for people to ask questions? I mean we ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, yeah, and wait for people. So wait for people to add. Okay. So I mean, I guess we can. I think I. Those are kind of all the questions I had for the article. We can go like beyond the article a bit if like you're interested. Um, yeah. So the article talks about like a load balancer and how the load balancer is like really efficient. I. I feel like he linked an article, he linked to another article that was really long and I just haven't had time to read that. <laughs> so um, I was wondering if you could, if you like knew about it slash could summarize what about the load balancer is like efficient, like what makes it efficient? Okay, cool. Um, yes, yeah, so the load balancer is called Unimog. Um, it is one of the products, uh, one of the, sorry, one of the systems that Cloudflare is most proud yeah. of. Um, because it is a layer followed balancer. What are the layers? Network. 
link i mean i feel like there's a um, what do you call this there is a there's acronym, acronym. <laughs> um, all people seem to need data processing dtp uh, yeah the data link yeah let's not do this <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let's not do this. Um, so yeah, Unimog is um, a load balancer on the um, layer four on layer four, right? That it pretty much handles how we shift traffic between metals when um, for various reasons, mm-hmm. right? So the main thing is if a met- if a server is unhealthy, right, it doesn't get traffic. Um, it does like a bunch of things. It uses um, eBPF as well. Um, which is nice because I, I like eBPF. Um, but I don't I don't like I'm not the Unimog team and I haven't like looked into how it's implemented yet. So I can only talk about like a summary of what it yeah. does and that it's efficient, right? I'm sorry, like if that's <laughs> no, that's fine. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean I guess just for uh sake of the audience, like layer four is the transport layer, apparently. Um, so there's physical data link, network, transport. And yeah, I think they actually like load balancers. There can be load balancers yeah. at almost any level. Um, and yeah. yeah, people are doing interesting things with, with that. Okay. So... Yeah, the most common one is the most common load balancers you care about, the ones on the HTTP. Yeah, that's the that's the transport one. Yeah, that's the four. Okay. Oh, yeah, really? transport is four. Okay. It is HTTP. I would imagine. Yes, TCP, IP. No, HTTP is network. No, That's network. HTTP. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> okay, um, so we have it. We have someone that's come to ask a question. So let him go. Does he? <laughs> Do you want to? Hey, guys. Um, Nemancha. I actually missed your name, sorry. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks for being on this. Um, so I'm looking for clarity about two things, and I'll go with the second one. You said that it's difficult solving the problem you're solving with the sine wave thing because there's always a data center in provisioning. Just clarify what you mean by provisioning. Oh, provisioning just means a data center that is being spun up, like a new data center. Okay, cool. That makes sense. That explains that. And yeah. um, I guess the other thing is, you guys already had this data about like when CPU load was low. Did you really have to? Did, did anyone on the team say, oh, we don't really have to switch it to a sine wave curve? We can just like pull for when it was lowest. And if, it's, if we find that it's been lowest in like the last three polls, we can use that time. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? I'm asking if this time wave fitting was necessary. Hmm. Um, so you meant like, oh, implementing like a long polling method that checks if you are, if the CPU is low at the present moment before allowing reboots. Oh no, more like because you have time stamp data of CPU load over like past two weeks, couldn't, yeah. if you simply looked for when CPU load was low, and try to find the most common time, would that not have worked? Yeah, that's ironic because what you just described is exactly what we did. Um, oh. Yeah, like using a sine wave was just a method to look for the most common time where it was low. So I don't, maybe I did not explain um, the solution properly, right? Because I, I just, like from your question, I just remember that I didn't talk about how the time was actually determined, right? So you have a sine wave that goes, that has a trough, like a valley, right? Um, and if the sine wave fits the, um, the, the valley of the CPU traffic, right? Um, you are pretty much looking for the most common periods, right? So if there are, let's say, five valleys and three out of those five valleys are the... Um, they happen at 3, 3 a.m. every day. Um, ironically, like some of them are, some data centers are have maintenance windows that are during the day, but obviously that's because of like time, time zones and stuff. Um, so yeah, pretty much using the mode, like the um, statistics mode thing, you can pretty much determine the most common period. Um, so I don't know how 
well a solution where you just look for um, the lowest points in CPU would work um, because since there's a theoretical representation and it works very, very well, um, that kind of feels like we would be grasping at the air if we're trying to look for it like with any other method that is not, do you get like, I don't know if I'm explaining properly. Yeah, okay, your your answer is basically yes, but this yeah. is more. I mean, yeah, I I, f I feel like with with that, like you, there would also be some reinventing of the wheel, right? Because I would imagine you pull. I mean, I, I want to imagine you're not just pulling one value. Like maybe pull like a range of values. Like okay, what has been the lowest over yeah. over the last two weeks? I don't see these values. Then you can decide what you want to do. Maybe pick the mode, or the mean, or just yeah. a random value. And what the fitting helps you do is just like it decides for you what the value you should pick is by like looking over the over the trend yeah so you would be reinventing it i think at some points maybe yeah and then it yeah. would definitely be difficult to determine how accurate um that is as well except you plot it which now take, <laughs> takes you back <laughs> takes you like yeah exactly yeah might as well just be manual then yeah i, I see now um Thanks. Um, I guess the only other thing was just curious about how accurate it's been so far. And in terms of observing CPU load, how detailed you guys are? Do you Are you also able to observe uh, resources that are causing CPU loads to spike, et cetera, et cetera, and what you use? Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a favor. Please, can you remember your second question and then ask me the first question because I feel like I have a lot to say about the second one. So what was okay. your first question? Um, first question was, oh yeah, how, how accurate has it been so far for you guys? All right, cool. Um, so it has been pretty accurate, um, the, which is why I keep mentioning like um, new colors and colors that have been provisioned recently. Um, most um, data centers have the um, sinusoidal pattern, right? Um, I guess we've been lucky in that sense. Um, but the only data centers that are pretty like notorious with having accuracy problems are the ones that are new and the ones that are test data centers that don't get customer traffic. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that and I was like, maybe it's just because you don't have enough. I thought about that and your comments about how that points to underutilization of data centers before. Yeah. And I was wondering if that's just because you don't have enough. That just means you don't have enough like samples on the sign cloud. Yeah. So you don't have enough data. Anyway, the other question was, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So personally at work, it's a very small scale thing. I'm just curious about how you guys observe CPU load and also whether you are able to grow more granular and see what resources requests that are, are actually causing those CPU, are causing, are utilizing CPU load. So CPU load power resource and the okay. terminology you use for that basically. Okay, oh, man, where do I start from? Um, so the reason like this question made me excited was because it's an observability question. Um, I was waiting to, to get something like that. But yeah, um, we, we can observe um, CPU across various um, things, right? So the first thing is because Unimog is a load balancer, is like the main load balancer, and he also like takes into account the CPU utilization. Unimog um, was the first main source of CPU data, right? So that's like because it takes into account a lot of various things, right? Um, so that's the first thing. And then you can observe CPU on the servers themselves. You can observe CPU on the data center level, like just on its own. Um, you can observe CPU on a, now this might be going too far because this might be territory I'm not familiar with. Anyways, I'll say still. You can observe CPU on um, a thread level as well because we have um, EBP. We have the EBPF exporter that we wrote. That I keep saying we as if I contributed, but yeah, um, we have the EBPF exporter that we wrote <laughs> um, 
that allows you um observe the kernel in a lower level um so ebpf itself in general it's it's like magic because it allows you hook into the kernel into kernel space and get information from kernel space and bring it into user space um so information that was previously not um available was now made available by ebpf um so whenever we need to observe things at a very very low level it's common for teams to write um exporters that um use custom like ebpf programs like bcc slash bpf trace programs that can export those kinds of information that we need so yeah the summary is that we are we are very very detailed about the amount of um information we get about performance because we are handling millions of requests per second right and you need to squeeze as much performance as you can out of um all the servers that you use so we're generally like very involved in um getting that kind of information so just to be clear you use unimog to get all the data you need and if you really need extra fine grained data you use ebpf traces tracers yeah. okay i'm just going to stop asking questions now in case they have no people. if you have yeah i don't think there's any. if you have more please go if anyone else has questions please um you can just request. But if you have any more, please go on. Oh, yeah. So this is, uh, like, you know how you have those dummy books for beginners? In terms of the concept of CPU and observability and knowing when things are good or bad, um, what, you know these things, but I don't know them. So, just, But, like, as you might don't know them, um, what... <laughs> What do you look for? Like, what about observing a, a server size just a CPU? Do you look for? Do you look at? I'm sorry. Like, you're going to have to paint like a picture. Is there okay. like an issue with the server? Let's assume there's an issue with the server, and occasionally you see memory spikes. You also see load spikes. Yeah. Although the concept of load is difficult to grasp. Yeah. Um, can you simplify what that? And you're trying to pinpoint the issue, right? Um, can you just walk through, walk through doing that really? And a related question is whether you have, whether observing the thread level, whether thread level observability is often useful. Okay. Um, so the question you asked is a very common question in like resolving any issue slash incident, right? So my favorite explanation on resolving things is to ask a bunch of questions and answer them, right? So there is like a root cause, but sometimes you have like the things you know, the things you don't know. Um, so you're pretty much going to ask various questions until you get to the, until you ask a question that has the answer you're looking for. Um, my favorite, but like to be more specific, right? My favorite way to debug a server that has an issue is um, there is a methodology from, there's a man called Brendan Gregg. He, for lack of a better word, is an OG, right? So he has a 60 second um, Linux bash thing where like if there's a server, I'll look for it and share it maybe in the replies of this um, space, right? Um, you can, you pretty much, that 60 second um, toolkit, I, I don't like know the technical terms to use for it. But that 60 second toolkit pretty much gives you a list of commands to run. So you're going to check CPU, you're going to check memory, you're going to check disk usage, you're going to check network stats, right? To see like what where is the load coming from? Where is the load going to? Is there anything running that should not be running? Is there anything that is resource intensive? Um most of the time, when you use that, you are able to figure out like what the issue is. Because again, it is just like you're running through a list of steps. You're asking a question at each step and you are answering the question. So you're pretty much eliminating like things that would have distracted you from the actual answer. So yeah, definitely I'll share the um, 60 second thing um, in the replies and it's, it's pretty useful. I think you'll enjoy it. Awesome response, thanks. The other question was whether the addendum was whether you find thread level of observability often okay. useful. Um, yes, because 
what we mostly find useful for right now is finding when um things are stuck right um yeah i think i'm going into territory where i'll have to start like saying more things so yeah i have to stop there but yeah we we use it to pretty much find when like things are stuck and it also like gives you more information when you know like there are times when like you would have a server that is misbehaving and you have no idea why um and most of the time if it's not a hardware problem it is okay if it's not a hardware problem it is more likely that one of the services is doing something that it should not be doing so um yeah that's my answer had more questions, but we have another speaker. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, next person can go, Pat slash N. Um, hi. Um, hi. I think I could skip. Like he sort of like answered the question I was gonna ask. So if you have more questions, you can just keep going. Uh, can I like out of curiosity? Can I ask what question you you had? Um. So like he mentioned previously that they sort of like try to squeeze out as much performance as they can from those. Mm-hmm servers given the amount of load they have to do with right but yeah like i do imagine like for i don't know whatever reason i want to maintain a given level of cpu i do just to ensure you have spec capacity in case you do happen to get more traffic yeah so um i guess he's sort of saying something like oh if they somehow track when things are not doing what they're supposed to do and sort of are now overutilizing like the resources that's sort of like help me answer the question i was going to ask anyway so. i mean that that, that kind um, of gives me a follow-up question as well right like is it actually possible to <laughs> force like make it possible to is, this is probably possible but i don't know um say that after like the cpu threshold how do i frame this properly um force i have something to say but okay go you, you can, can go um so in terms of that right because you have um, servers that are running multiple services at once, you have you need to have a way that to make sure there's a word for this. You need to have a way to make sure that they are not using more resources than they should be using, right? Um, so in Linux, you can use like C groups to make sure that yeah, this you are allocating the amount of data. You know, like when you have Kubernetes pods and you say this is the amount of CPU you have, this is the amount of memory you have, right? Um, so even if a process is stuck or it's just trying to use more CPU than it can use, the worst that will happen is, especially with memories that it gets home killed, double OM. Um, yeah, that that really took me for a loop when people when you just say home. But yeah, um, it gets home killed because it has exercised resources. So you make sure that like it does not affect other services as well. That's just to add, not like the concrete answer. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Thanks. Cool. Um, okay, so any other questions from the audience? Um, we'll just like give five, well, three to five minutes. If there are no questions, we'll end it. Um, in the meantime, Dizzy, you can ask any question you have or anyone. Uh, Pat. Um, yeah. I think, I guess with respect to like, um, I guess with respect to like determining the reboot window, right? I'm guessing whoever is going to be issuing the reboot request would somehow need to take into account if a given server has been rebooted recently. Because, yes, we mentioned that oh, um, you're going to like, each process has limits on how much resources they can use. And if you exceed your limits, maybe you might just yeah. get killed or something. But like for some reason, you have to step in and say, oh, let's take the server down and bring it up again, right? And then there okay. is now a reboot window, which is approaching. I'm guessing like you have to take that into account, yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. Okay. No, just thinking out loud. Not, not really like a question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. So one minute, and then I think we can wrap this up. <sighs> well, thank you for you know coming on. This was really short notice, but we appreciate. Thank you. Um, what I'll say is if anyone has any questions about 
SRE, observability, performance, any of those things. Okay. I'm always happy to answer. We... Like, not now. <laughs> like, you can reach out to me. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. You can, you can reach out to me um, and I'll be happy to answer. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think we can wrap this up then. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, thank you, Otpe, for coming up to speak with us. Hope to have you again um, until the next conversation. All right. Oh, we have a request, very late requests. So we would give... Oh, person has removed the request. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it was Haxalton. Haxalton, do you want to ask Orna? Maybe he wanted to share the performance. Oh yeah, they feel like links in the in the replies of this space, please. So you can, yeah, please. If you're looking for the link, it's there. Okay, hacks are turning up. So just wait, wait a sec. Yeah, thank you very much, man. I, I think I already shared the performance doc, uh, the article to the performance already. I wanted to ask a question about the uh, resource allocation itself. I think I'll just reach out to you later, actually. I think it's time. Okay. Uh, enough Thank you. Yeah, sure, All right, cool. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye.